Our first reading comes to us from the book of Exodus, chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. From the wilderness of sin, the whole congregation of the Israelites journeyed by stages as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. The people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord said to Moses, Go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will be standing there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, and water will come out of it, so that the people may drink. Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He called the place Massa and Meribah, because the Israelites quarreled and tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? This is the word of the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul, rejoice, for His love is strong, and His mercies never-ending. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul, rejoice, for His love is strong, and His mercies never-ending. All I have needed have provided great is your faithfulness oh lord your mercy is new every morning great is your faithfulness that all the people sing praise the lord oh my soul rejoice for his love strong and his mercies never ending praise the Lord oh my soul rejoice for his love is strong and his mercies never ending from the beginning you have been with me great is your faithfulness downcast your love is steadfast great is your faithfulness and all the people sing praise the Lord oh my soul rejoice for his love is strong and his mercies never ending praise the Lord oh my soul rejoice for for his love is true. 
help me trust you more Lord I trust in you help me trust you more Our second reading comes to us from the book of Psalms, Psalm 95. Come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout for joy to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving and raise a loud shout to him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the caverns of the earth and the heights of the hills are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands have molded the dry land. Come, let us bow down and bend the knee and kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and sheep of his hand. Oh, that today you would hearken to his voice. Harden not your hearts as your forebears did in the wilderness at Meribah and on that day at Massa when they tempted me. They put me to the test, though they had seen my works. Forty years long I detested that generation and said, This people are wayward in their hearts. They do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. This is the word of the Lord. In my presence be enough when I'm fearful when I'm doubting may I have the strength to trust you're the first you're the last you're forever you're the one who brings spring out of winter You're the promise and you are the keeper You're the one who holds all things together Together, together You're the one who holds all things together In my grieving In my sorrow your goodness steady me when I'm blinded, when I'm hopeless. May I have the eyes to see. You're the first, you're the last, you're forever. You're the one who brings spring out of winter. You're the promise and you are the keeper. You're the one who holds all things together. Together, together. You're the one who holds all things together. In my serving, when I'm hidden, I will trust the Father sees When you call me I will listen I will follow where you lead I will follow You're the one who brings spring out of winter. You're the promise and you 
are the keeper. You're the one who holds all things together. You're the first, you're the last, you're forever. You're the one who brings spring out of winter. You're the promise and you are the keeper. You're the one who holds all things together. Together, together. You're the one who holds all things together. Together, together. You're the one who holds all things together. I will trust in you. I will trust in you, Jesus. You hold all things together. Our lives are in your hands. Teach us to trust you. Teach us to trust in you. Give us grace. Give us grace to trust in you. Our third reading comes to us from the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verses 5 through 26. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us the well and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father seeks such as these to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When He comes, He will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am He, the one who is speaking to you. This is the word of the Lord. This is Chris McDaniel, the senior pastor at Trinity Anglican here in Atlanta, Georgia. And for at least the next couple of weeks, we are going to be engaging in a modified rhythm of worship and exhortation and encouragement from the Bible Uh, due to concerns around the coronavirus in Atlanta, Georgia. Our church leadership has made the difficult decision to take two weeks off uh, from church in terms of public gathering and cease all of our regularly programmed activities in order to watch and wait 
to see what's happening and see how things are unfolding. And so our commitment to you over the next number of days and weeks is to monitor and communicate. Uh, Our hope is, though experiencing some modified rhythms, that we will continue to um, give you content, access to Bible engagement, and general pastoral exhortation and encouragement. It's also a commitment of us as a leadership team to be available to you, the Trinity community, pastorally. And so as needs arise or conversations need to be happening, I want you to know that it's our commitment to continue meeting and engaging in one-on-one in very small environments while we watch and wait to see what's going to happen next here in and around Atlanta. My purpose today is to do a version of a sermon. And I recognize that there's a profound difference between, you know, me sitting at a desk in my office with my notes in my lap, uh, with a microphone in front of me and what we do at church on Sunday. And so right now it is not our uh, attempt. We're not making an attempt to try to recreate church. Uh, I think maybe the best way for us to think about this is some sort of a, a kind of fireside chat, if you will, where we continue looking at Romans. Uh, we continue also thinking and talking about the rhythms uh, and the realities that are facing us in light of this current, frankly, unprecedented situation in our world and certainly also in our country. Uh, The last number of days, I think for many of us in this community have been deeply unsettling. Uh, I've seen and experienced in conversations with people, emotion ranging from uh, panic and fear on one side to cynicism, almost kind of mocking the reality that people are afraid on the other side. And what we want to do as the pastors here at Trinity is simply call all of us to slow down and to stop and do some reflection, some deliberation, because whether we're on board or not with everything that the government's doing, and maybe even whether you're on board or not with what we're doing here at Trinity and taking a two-week hiatus from ministry activity, the thing that I think we're all being invited to sit with is that something's happening. Uh, Something's happening, causing our schools to shut down. Um, People are more more afraid uh, to gather. Uh, There are words um, that are unfolding, and maybe by the time you hear this, you'll hear that some major cities in our country are going to be on quarantine. Um, What I believe God has called all of us to do is to sit as still in the boat as we possibly can, to ask Him for grace, uh, to be attentive to the reality around us, and to the fact that the Lord has called all of His children to be and cultivate a posture of peace. He's called us to be people of peace. Now, that doesn't mean we're not afraid. I think peace is what happens when we ask for the gift of God in the midst of uncertainty and difficulty. And interestingly enough, in this Lenten season, our study in Romans, I think, really invites us to think about some of these very important things. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read and give you a little bit of insight. It'll be a different kind of approach to teaching than you're probably used to hearing from me just because the environment's different. The medium is new to us. And then what we're going to be doing in addition to Sunday, which is when you're listening to this, is we're going to be checking in as a church leadership with you as the church on a midweek kind of connection point. And that'll either be uh, a YouTube video, it'll be maybe an audio that'll happen so that we're giving a couple of touch points a week where we're rolling out content to you, but also, frankly, just creating touch points and connections so that we as the family of God can remember that we're the family of God. Y'all, just because we're not necessarily getting gathering for the next two weeks. It doesn't mean that the community that makes up Trinity has ceased to be. Uh, We worship across three locations, and we're still the family of God, even if for the very short term, um, we're taking a break from those meetings. And y'all, I just want to say it's our commitment to continue to revisit and reevaluate and to make um, the right kinds of decisions for how we're going to maintain our identity as a worshiping community because y'all, the Lord's been telling a story here for a long time and that story is going to continue to be told. We continue to be the family of God. Amen? Amen. I'm going to read from Romans 5 and then I want to share a few things that I think are actually really relevant to this cultural moment we're in. Paul says in verse 1 in Romans 5, Therefore, since we are justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand, and we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. 
For while we were weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, someone might actually dare to die. But God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more surely then, now that we have been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more surely having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? But more than that, we can even boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray, and then I'm just going to share a few thoughts with you as the church. Holy Spirit, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you, God, that in the midst of uncertainty, uh, we get to be the people of God. Lord, we thank you that even though we may not be gathering today in person as we typically do across our three locations to worship you and receive communion, we are being invited to gather here via this medium of technology and think together, reason together, uh, worship together. And so, Lord, we ask for your grace to help us think deep thoughts about the scripture. But, Lord, we also ask you to help us think deep and true thoughts about our own life especially during this season of remarkable uncertainty. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. So in this section in Romans 5, um, up until now, Paul has been making a series of arguments that we've been sitting with over the last number of weeks here at Trinity. And yet what we see here is a kind of shift. Really, frankly, it's the first opportunity for us to gain insight into the heart behind the argument that Paul has been making. He's frankly on a bit of a roll here. Um, there's a sense of uh, optimism or even hope that comes through these words that Paul writes. He's saying something to us, frankly, Paul is, and I think it's something we need to hear right now about this feeling of love that can and should exist between the one who justifies God and the recipients of justification and reconciliation, and that's us, the family of God. This is not just a, a deal that's been made where a powerful person grants to weaker people some sort of dispensation of mercy, but there's a loving connection here, and Paul is really tapping into that. And I think that as we face seasons of uncertainty, it's so important for us to recognize God is not just powerful. He is powerful, but he's also powerful and deeply committed to us as his people. And so when we face things that worry us or terrify us, um, we need to remember that the love of God is actually very, very present to us. He is both powerful and loving. And so I want you to hear this. And if you hear nothing else in what I'm going to say to you today, I want you to hear this. If God loved people enough to die for them when they were in a weakened place, he can and will surely complete the thing that he has begun in us. God finishes the things that he starts. So there are a number of movements in this passage. And if you worship with us on a regular basis or even, frankly, tune into our podcast, you know this is the way I typically do things. I'm going to name just a few different movements, if you will, in this passage. And here's the first one. Paul is trying to make this argument. Justification opens the door to, to peace. So here it is. Justification opens the door to peace. That's the first movement in the text as far as I'm concerned. The passage begins with these words from Paul. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The word therefore links what Paul is about to say in this passage we're reading to what's already been said. And this is it, y'all. When we turn to God in faith without having all the answers in hand, when we say yes, like Abraham said, God approves of us. He justifies us. And I can't think of a more relevant time for us to think about things like this. Church, we are being given an invitation to say yes to the fact that God is with us, even though we face uncertainty, things that worry us, maybe even cause fear in us, things that are disrupting the way that our culture is actually doing its day-to-day -day life. And a number of weeks ago here at Trinity on the West Side, we talked about how Abraham, when he was an old man, married to an old lady, childless, without a home, was met by God and God told him he was going to make him into a great people. And he, only, he also said, your people are going to go through remarkable trouble and difficulty and I will see you through it. Now, Abraham could have said, well, that sounds okay, God, but I'd like some more information. And he probably felt that because when we all face seasons of uncertainty, we think like, Lord, this would be really helpful if you could give me all the data so that I would know exactly how this story works. 
I mean, I sit here at this desk at Trinity um, this this afternoon thinking these very same things, thinking, well, how long is it going to last? How long is our life going to be disrupted? How many weeks will it go before we're able to gather together? How many people in our church are going to experience significant financial upheaval in the days and weeks ahead? And the truth is, y'all, we don't have answers to all those questions any more than Abraham did. But Abraham looked at God and he looked at the uncertainty and he said, yes. And I believe that's the task of Christians. We're tasked to look at God and look at the uncertainty and discern how in our heart of hearts we can say yes. Not yes, but not yes, if you'll give me more information, but yes. And the truth is that's always the invitation in front of us. And yet it's during seasons of crisis or chaos or uncertainty that our commitment to that yes actually comes under fire. We actually discover what we're really willing to do before God when it becomes a bit difficult or challenging or fear-inducing. And the thing that I love is somehow in God's economy, saying yes to him puts us in a right relationship with God, and that opens the door to peace. So this first movement is that justification, which is the right relationship that we have before God when we say yes to him, that justification opens us up to peace. So what is peace? If that approval from the heart of God spoken over you and me grants us peace, well, what is peace? Is peace just the equivalent of a stress-free life? No. (laughs) Is peace a vacation? Uh, just checking out from email or task or the news for a certain period of time? Absolutely not. Um, Peace in this context, and I would argue peace in every context, connotes a non-hostile relationship, not just the absence of open conflict or fear, but peace is a non-hostile, harmonious relationship. And so what God is trying to say is that when we face uncertainty and we muster a yes in our hearts before God, he gives us access to a non-hostile relationship with him. He's describing a sense of harmony here, a way of life that is marked by joy and peace, a way of life that actually invites us into uncertain places and with the mindset and the heart that says, okay, God, I don't know what's going to happen next, but you are clearly with me. I think one of the images that Paul is trying to stir in his writing here about a cessation of hostility as in peace is this idea of like war coming to an end. Um, a treaty being signed, people being free to come out of doors, to come out of hiding. And I'll tell you this, if I'm honest with myself, there are many times where even though God has clearly done something for us as Christians, I still behave as if I'm in the midst of a war, in, in the midst of hostility, in the midst of a struggle that's causing me to fight for my life. And if we're honest, many of us would say that struggle is probably one of our primary orientations toward uh, adversity and toward life. And we're experiencing that now in a kind of gloves off sort of way. But what Paul is saying here is that Jesus has done something for those who would believe. Um, He has done something on our behalf that speaks to the fact that we do not need to live our lives in fear or with a kind of orientation toward brutal struggle. Jesus is inviting us to live in a place of peace harmonious, non-hostile relationship with God. And one of our great challenges here is that many of us have never had this peace, this thing modeled to us by any human relationship. And so we frankly just struggle to grasp, like, what does it even mean for me to live at peace? A couple of weeks ago at Trinity, um, I talked about how the 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 book of Romans invites us to see two very different kingdoms. Um, one kingdom is the space we occupy, this broken, fallen world, the world where coronavirus fears cause us to um, pull back from even gathering together. This is what we know. Um, it's a, it's a dog eat dog world. It's a, a fearful place. It's a, it's a broken place. It's a fallen place, but there is another place. Uh, this place that we've been occupied to step into, that Jesus has asked us to enter into. And it's a very different place. It's a place marked by the peace of God. It's marked by uh, people who are walking in alignment with God's purposes and then therefore are able to experience a kind of different quality of life. It's quite challenging to intentionally depart a place you know in order to move to a place you've heard about but don't really know. And I think that's actually one of the fundamental challenges as we sit with passages like this. Um, And frankly, y'all, 
during the season of Lent, I think the Jews are our teachers in this respect because they show us how hard it is. Um, you should read the book of Exodus right now. I think Exodus would be a very, very timely word for those those of us in the church because what we see in the book of Exodus is a group of people who are leaving certainty, Egypt, slavery. It wasn't good, but they knew what it was. Uh, it wasn't uh, life-giving, and yet they knew what to expect. Slavery is very, very predictable. Um, I think that what we have is an opportunity here to see that God is asking us to enter into new places, even if those new places feel foreign to us. It's hard to leave the thing you know for the thing you don't know. Um, Even if the thing we know is bad, uh, we have to leave it for a place that maybe we don't know but is going to be better. Um, You are in the middle. I am in the middle of an exodus of sorts right now, Um, and we need to understand that God has given us a way forward. So that's the first movement. The second movement is Jesus grants Christians unfettered access to grace. Um, This is for the people who believe, and this is why this is such a powerful uh, passage for us, because what Jesus has done is he's opened a door to grace. And because of what he's done to bring us into this place of non-hostile living, he's actually opened a door before us. He's given us ready access to something that is actually life-changing. It's free access. It's not hindered or limited. Um, This idea of freedom of coming and going, I feel like, is a really significant idea for us because we're increasingly feeling like we have less freedom to come and go. Um, this coronavirus has caused a lot of us to feel like we're losing a little bit of a sense of our freedom. We don't get to do exactly what we want to do when we want to do it um, because it's just not the reality in front of us. Well, the thing that Paul is trying to say here about this idea of free access is that we've been given more freedom than we ever could imagine. And y'all listen to what the Lord wants to say to us about grace. Grace means favor. Grace means one who is in power, God, stoops in kindness to those who are inferior, us. And so in this sense, y'all, grace is empowering. Uh, We're going to see that in a moment. We're going to unpack that. But I just want to say Jesus has granted those who would believe in him, who would trust in him, access to God's unfettered, unhindered kindness and favor which means that we don't have to orient our lives around struggle in the way that we would have been inclined to do. And yet, if we're honest, many of us struggle to really wrap our heads around it. I said it a few minutes ago. I'm a fighter. Um, I sometimes go looking for fights when there isn't really a fight to be had. And Jesus invites us to move away from an orientation like that, an orientation towards struggle, toward believing the worst is always around the corner, to begin to move into a different space altogether, a place that Jesus has actually made available to those who would believe him. I have a mentor uh, who I meet with, and she um, attends our church, and we sit together on a regular basis, and I'm so very thankful for her influence in my life. And she recently said this to me. She said, Chris, you're too inclined to struggle. Um, you have got to learn to rest in good things. Uh, you you look sometimes for the, for the negative thing to happen. Um, it's almost as if Paul is suggesting in this passage that the grace of God made available to us by the work of Jesus is like a room that we're invited to enter into a different kind of place, a physical space of the soul that is about approval and empowering that actually can stop that that tendency that I have toward struggle and toward chaos and toward feeling like the whole world is a fight and the next thing around the corner is going to be a bad thing. Grace is an environment. I believe that grace has a culture associated with it. I believe that grace, um, the grace that Jesus gives us is a place of remarkable security and strength. And so I just want to ask you this question, like how would you be facing the uncertainty of your life right now, the uncertainty that we're all facing, if we knew that we were facing it from a place of security, from a place of strength, a place where Jesus has done something for us? So here's the way my mind is thinking of this, at least in part. I imagine, um, you know, a pilgrim on a pilgrimage, someone on a long trek uh, to to reinforce a part of their their faith. And it's maybe a dusty journey, maybe at times a dangerous journey. And yet when they arrive to their destination, they're ushered into a place that they've been looking for and hoping for all, all along. I think of this in the sense of journeying toward Jesus. And for those of you who aren't a Christian, are Christians, uh, there's an immediate application here. Um, but for those of you who who are, are Christians, who have been believers for quite some time, I believe 
believe that there is a sense in which we're being invited to say, God is wanting to lead me into a place that feels like home, a place where we're meant to uh, to, to be um, at rest. And, and in that sense, I think of home really as carrying two different kind of qualities. Uh, home is a place of rest. And home is also a place from which we are able and invited to engage the world around us. The Lord wants us to be the kinds of people who find rest so that we can engage in the world around us. If we only ever just seek to find rest, then what we do, y'all, is we succumb to self-preservation. Rest becomes a way to protect what's mine because I'm afraid that if I give anything away, um, I won't have enough. Y'all, home is where we rest so that we can be attentive. And I just want to say in the coming weeks, we're going to be talking about this more, but but we're not looking and calling you as Christians during this season to simply just take care of you and your own. We've got to find out ways to be the neighbors that God has called us to be. We've got to find out ways to engage. Now, should we check our brains at the door? No, but we can't succumb to self-preservation. Home is not just a place for us to hide from the chaos of the world. It's also a launching pad for us to engage in meaningful and actionable ways. And I will tell you, and we're going to find this to be true in very clear ways, engaging the world around you is difficult work. And that painful work even. And I think that's what leads us to this third movement in the passage. Um, Paul pivots this idea after he says something about the peace of God and about this access to grace. He then essentially says this, and this is the third movement in the passage. Grace enables us to face trouble with confidence. I'm going to say it again. Grace enables us to face trouble with confidence. Some biblical translators can't handle the word boast in this part of the passage. If, if you read some translations, you'll, you'll read uh, different, different words, but boast is the right word. It's, and boast means a profound and unshakable confidence in God. And here Paul is saying something profound, and y'all, I want you to hear me on this. We as Christians are able to boast, to demonstrate supreme confidence because we are standing in a space of grace that Jesus has made for us. That's why I long for all of you listening to my voice who are not Christian to become Christians because I want you to stand in a place of supreme confidence as you face trouble and difficulty. That's the heart of God for us. This is why at various stages in church history when terrible stuff was going on in the world, Christians ran toward the plague, not away from it because there was a sense of unshakable confidence at the heart of the follower of God that says, Jesus has made a way for me to be a person of courage. And and having courage doesn't mean we're not afraid. Um, Having confidence does not mean that we don't experience fear. What it does mean is that Jesus has given us a place to stand. And I'm going to say this, y'all, the atmosphere in the place where Jesus has given us, the atmosphere of that grace space changes everything. You are able I am able, we are invited to occupy a place that enables us to face whatever happens in this life. My mind keeps going back to something that Paul said earlier, namely that Jesus is a place, that Jesus represents a place of atonement, of satisfaction. And maybe those two statements are connected, that Jesus is the place where satisfaction and grace are fully available to those who would believe. And I remember hearing Dallas Willard, a philosopher and a writer, Uh, once say a number of years ago, wherever I am and whatever I face, that I am perfectly safe when I'm with Jesus in his kingdom. And here Paul's saying essentially the same thing. Paul's reminding us that it isn't possible to face difficulty from a place of security. And I just want to say this very clearly, church, it is possible for us to face the uncertainty that's before us in our culture from a place of security from a place of knowing whose we are and where we belong. And so I think it's really important for us to stop and ask some questions about how we're doing in that respect. I miss the mark on a very regular basis, and I'm sure you do too. But occasionally, I find myself standing in that space as I engage some difficult situation, a challenge for which I do not have an answer. And I'm going to just go out on a limb and say, most all of us are facing challenges for which we do not have an answer. This is why we cannot and must not try to live our lives apart from Jesus. Um, This is why I think it's so, so very important for us to turn to Jesus and trust him, whether that's for the first time or for the millionth time. When we choose to face suffering and trouble from a place of God's grace, here's what we find. 
And this is so important. The progression Paul outlines is so important. So I'm going to hit them one at a time. Paul says, um, essentially experiences in life produce things in you. Um, and, and another way of saying that is Paul would say life does things to you. It does something inside you and to you. So life can do destructive things or life can produce life-giving things. So here are the things Paul says, and there's a progression here. So I want you to, to hear this. Number one, he says, suffering produces endurance. And this is true even on a physiological level uh, exercise, and you'll learn this. If we avoid pain and suffering, we'll never see how things unfold in God's world. Um, suffering produces endurance. And that means that something good can come from pain. Something good can come from hard things. And then Paul says, endurance produces character. So suffering produces endurance. That's the first movement in this, this section. And then endurance produces character. Character, uh, understood by the Greeks, the, uh, the language, I'm bumping into things. Sorry about that. We're new at this technology, so cut me some slack. Um, character at the time that the Greek language was unpacking this word around the time of Paul, they would have understood character in terms of being carved or etched. And so essentially what Paul here is saying is that suffering produces endurance and that endurance produces a kind of formation or etching or carving in your life. And I think sometimes what that does is it gives us a way to reframe our experience of suffering and to recognize that if we will become people of endurance, that endurance will actually shape and form our character. It will carve and etch us. And so the Greeks would have understood this character formation in terms of uh, a statue a hunk of, of unformed rough marble being carved and uh, chiseled and etched so that it would become a beautiful statue. Essentially, what, what, the, what the writer is trying to mine out here is that the pain of your life, if you live with and in the grace of God, can actually make you into a kind of person who has shape and form, who's able to be a person of substance. And then Paul doesn't finish. He moves on from saying endurance produces character, and he says character produces hope. When I am carved, when I am formed, when I stand in the grace of God as I face uncertainty, then I am able to be a person who is shaped and experience the kind of hope that results when I know that God is working and that I'm actually growing in the midst of trouble. And then Paul finishes with this and says, and hope leads us to satisfaction. It does not disappoint us. So I think that Paul is trying to get us to think about as the family of God, um, what do we do? How can we reframe seasons of difficulty and uncertainty um, in light of the good news of what Jesus has done for us? And I want you to know, Paul is not, the Lord is not saying that everything is going to be fine, that life ultimately turns toward ease and success. Um, there's really not a hint of happily ever after in these words. Um, Paul is saying what we feel in our bones, which is that trouble is a part of our experience in a broken and fallen world. Um, and it's really important. But it's also important for us to hear what Paul is not saying. He is not saying if you bear down, if you grit your way through it, then you'll be the right kind of person. Um, to help keeping us from missing the point, Paul then pivots and points Christians to the person and work of the Holy Spirit. He says, hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. And so that leads us to the fourth movement in this passage, and that's this. The Holy Spirit enables us Christians to experience God's love. So if Jesus is going to help us and we're going to grow through difficulty, the Holy Spirit actually helps us not just bear down through difficulty, but the Holy Spirit helps us as Christians experience the love of God. So here Paul, at a very strategic moment in the passage, reminds us of the work of the Holy Spirit because he knows that it would be easy for people like you and me to lose perspective in the midst of trouble. So what does the Holy Spirit do here? The Holy Spirit pours God's love into our hearts. And this actually, I think, suggests that in a neutral setting, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, that we have a receptivity problem. And I know this because I feel it in my own life. Um, sometimes God may be wanting to do something for me, like give me access to an awareness of his love. But if I'm in tunnel vision mode because all hell is breaking loose around me, I can sometimes miss um, receiving what the Lord does. And this is where the person and work of the Holy Spirit comes in. 
I find that in my own life, and you may experience this in yours, that we're almost like uh, wine bottles, empty wine bottles. Um, there's a reservoir that can contain, but there's a very narrow opening. And it's hard to get liquid into that opening, especially if it's just being dumped in. And so in this sense, I think Paul is actually trying to paint a picture of the Holy Spirit as almost like a funnel. It enables us to receive more of the love of God than we would otherwise receive. And if you're in a place right now to where you feel like, I just don't have a sense of being safe in God's kingdom and experiencing his love, I want to commend the prayer to invite the Holy Spirit's work to increase in your life. I want to commend that prayer to you. Because one of the things the Holy Spirit does is the Holy Spirit makes me more aware of God's love. And if you're facing difficulty, being aware of the love of God actually is a is a catalytic change agent to keep us from succumbing to either fatalism and nihilism on one hand or self-help and grit and determination on the other hand. See, the thing is, love reminds me that I'm not a slave. But if I'm honest, I will admit that I act and behave as a person who is not free from time to time. I'm tempted to quit. I'm tempted to feel disqualified. I'm weak. And I think about the Jews. Um, they, They were from Egypt, many of them, toward the end when they were liberated from slavery. All they knew is the bad stuff. All they knew is the mindset of slavery, the, the, the feeling responsible but never feeling empowered, which is just another way to understand slavery. It's like all the burden of responsibility without any power um, or volitional choice. And when they were called out of, um, of captivity and wandered in that wilderness, they really didn't do a great job because they were weak. They were acting um, like they had been conditioned to act. And I think that in some ways, when we face uncertainty, um, what comes out of us sometimes is a product of how we've lived most of our lives, which is just not as free, um, not as receptive as God wants us to be. And so we enter these places now, and it's kind of discouraging because we feel like, gosh, I I just wish that I was more free. I wish I was more able to see that I'm not alone in this and that God is with me. And that leads us to this final movement in the passage, the fifth movement, which is this. Jesus moves toward us who believe to help us in our weakness i.e. we're not alone. In verse 6, Paul says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Y'all, he comes close to us when we cannot help ourselves. If you are not a Christian, I want you to hear this. Jesus is moving toward you because he knows that you cannot resolve all your issues on your own, that you cannot actually bring yourself to a place of fundamental and profound peace. So that means that we're invited to let Jesus meet us in our vulnerability. But y'all, it's hard for us to admit sometimes that we're vulnerable. So for those of us who are Christian, um, it's sometimes hard for us to admit that we are actually in a vulnerable place and need God to meet us. Jesus is moving toward us either way. He moves toward us in order to save us, to reconcile us, to save us. Reconcile means to cease hostility. To save means to be invited into a new kind of life, to be taken out of one way of being and placed into a place where you can experience a different kind of life. And I think about this idea of Jesus's death on the cross. And um, many of us, you know, have wondered, why did God have to die? Why, Why did Jesus have to die? Why did he have to lay his life down? And if you understand the Jewish roots of the Bible, you know, animal sacrifice really gets gets into the story very, very early on. I mean, all the way back in Genesis when the first family sinned and uh, their immediate instinct when they sinned was to hide, right? Well, first it was to um, create their own clothing out of fig leaves, which were not permanent enough. They did not do the job. And so they hid uh, because they were ashamed of their vulnerability. And I would argue that we humans have never stopped being ashamed of our own vulnerability, our own weakness. And so we hide. We hide from God. We hide from each other. And how did the Lord resolve? Uh, How did the Lord deal with that? How did the Lord bring the first family out of hiding? He killed an animal and blood was spilled And skins were turned into clothing and he covered human shame because of an animal sacrifice. And that human shame being covered then allowed us to move back toward one another and toward God. And I want to say this to you. Jesus has died to cover your shame. 
Jesus has laid his life down. He has become a kind of clothing for you, skins and animal dying to become clothing in order to cover our shame so that we would move out of hiding, so that we could press through self-preservation and isolation to something better, to something more real. And I want us to understand the fact that Jesus moving toward us in our weakness is not just sentimental. It's actually a life-changing, life-saving action on the part of God. That God has actually made a way for you to move toward him and toward other people. Um, He's done something for us that we could never, despite our best efforts, do for ourselves. And so I want to say this to you, wherever you are in your journey, whether you're Christian or not today, this is a big thing for us to wrestle with and consider. Today, Jesus is ready for us. He is ready for us to take the next step. And that might mean saying yes to him for the first time, or it might mean saying yes to him for the first time in a long time. It might mean saying, God, I need your help because if I, if I don't receive a sense of well-being from you, I will not behave as if I'm supposed to behave in the next weeks and months to come. Jesus has made a way for us to live like free women, free men. And my prayer for us is that we would be the kinds of people who would learn how to say yes to him. I want to leave us with this quote from C.S. Lewis. One of the things that I love about Lewis is that he took to the radio during the Blitz, uh, during a time of remarkable uncertainty in the United Kingdom. And I'm by no means comparing the Blitz to the coronavirus. But I do think that there's something really powerful here and winsome in the way that Lewis spoke to his own constituency during a time of remarkable uncertainty. He said this, this is the first point to be made. And the first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. If we are all going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things, praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pint and a game of darts, not huddled together like frightened sheep thinking about bombs. They may break our bodies. A microbe can do that, but they do not need to dominate our minds. Good words from our brother Lewis. God bless you. We'll be in touch midweek. We'll see you soon.
That is who you are Even when I don't see it, you're working Even when I don't feel it, you're working You never stop, you never stop working You never stop, you never stop working Even when I don't see it, you're working Even when I don't feel it, you're working You never stop, you never stop working You never stop, you never stop working Even when I don't see it, you're working Even when I don't feel it, you're working You never stop, you never stop working You never stop, you never stop working Even when I don't see it, you're working Even when I don't feel it, you're working never stop, you never stop working, you never stop, cause you are way maker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are, you are way maker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are. That is who you are. That is who you are. That is who you are.